This is Telehealth Unmuted, a podcast developed by Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. HTRC is one of 14 federally designated telehealth resource centers in the country, serving the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We know there's a huge need for up-to-date telehealth-related information, from billing and reimbursement to psychology and online therapy. So we're bringing subject matter experts and their insights right to you. I'm your host, Kara Lawler, Director of Health Communication Research Center, and this is Telehealth Unmuted. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, Erin Sulman. She is the Executive Director of the Down Syndrome Association of Greater St. Louis. She started in this role in 2016 after serving three years as Director of Programs and Services. In her role as Executive Director, Erin oversees the mission and strategic vision for the organization, advancement efforts, fundraising, programs, finance, and human resources. Erin has a master's in public health as well as a master's in anthropology from the University of Arizona and has worked in public health nonprofits her entire career. Her passion for this particular mission comes from her brother, Andrew, who has Down syndrome. Welcome to the show, Erin. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am really excited to have you. And, you know, we have wanted to do this episode for a very long time uh, because part of the conversation of health equity and digital care involves our disability community. So we're really fortunate to have you on to give your perspective Um, as a leader in this uh, subject area and to just talk through the great uh, programs that y'all are implementing and um, room for improvement and growth in the future. So starting off, I always ask the same question, um, and it is for people to tell me about their professional background. How did you get here in this position? Sure. Um, So... I think like a lot of people, my journey was not totally linear. Um, I wouldn't have guessed that I would be here. You know, I started my career um, or my educational journey. So, you know, back a million years ago, um, when I was thinking about college, I wanted, I knew I wanted to work with people. I love people and I love different cultures. I love different backgrounds. I love different ways of thinking. So I originally was going to become an anthropologist and um, I did end up getting my master's in anthropology, but I also realized that I wanted something that was a little bit more hands-on. And I knew that I also loved like the medical aspect of anthropology. So I specialized in medical anthropology, um, but I wanted to be working with people on the ground, thinking about real solutions to real problems in real time. So I took some public health courses and I fell in love with public health Um, and anthropology and public health intersect really nicely. I went to the University of Arizona um, and they have a really cool way that they integrate public health and anthropology because Really, I mean, you can't talk about healthcare seeking without talking about culture um, and background and and religion and belief system. So I just love that. And um, so I have a master's in public health and a master's in anthropology from the University of Arizona. Um, I'm originally from St. Louis, and this is where my family is. So after um, about, you know, 12 years away, I did, I moved back to St. Louis um, for personal reasons and to be near my family. And I had worked in various public health nonprofits. I was executive director for a nonprofit in Colorado for about six months before I had to move back to um, St. Louis. And my brother has Down syndrome. 
Um, so I was just looking for something, you know, in the field where I could be involved in a mission that I cared about and be working on programs and uh, apply my leadership capabilities. And so the director of programs and services at the Downstream Association of Greater St. Louis became available about six months after I moved home, which was just like amazing, wow. perfect timing. Um, and I applied and I got that job. And then about three years later, the executive director at the time um, moved back to his hometown and they, the board promoted me to executive director. So I've been with the organization for 10 years um, and I love it. I love that with the program's background, I get to think about the strategic vision of the organization and our mission and help our program's team grow. Um and evaluations and all of that. And then, but then I love getting to use those other areas of my brain where I get to work on finance and the budget and human resources and all that good stuff. So I've learned a lot as I've gone along and I'm still learning. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just so honored to be able to do this work in, in a community that I care so much about in St. Louis. Wow. That's such a cool story. And I, I think Oftentimes when, you know, I've talked to people who lead nonprofits um, like this one, a lot of them come from a public health background or from a social work background or from, you know, an industry or, or you know, study that focuses on people, on populations and on on cultural trends within populations. So I think that's really interesting and I don't think it's coincidental either um, because I think the things that you learn, you know, in those programs will equip you um, to be, you know, good in your role. So, um, so many follow-ups, but the first is, can you describe for our audience what the Down Syndrome Association of Greater St. Louis is? Like, how would you, how would you describe it to um, the general population and what what are kind of your main um, mission goals and programs? So the Down Syndrome Association of Greater St. Louis, we serve, support, and celebrate the lives of people with Down syndrome and their families through every stage of life. And our vision is an inclusive community um, in which all people with Down syndrome can reach their full potential. So we do that through a variety of ways. We were founded about 46 years ago in 1976. Um, by a group of parents. And so our pillar program, the reason for our existence is family support and connection. Um, so that is the, the bulk of what we have done throughout our existence is just providing support to families ha that have a new diagnosis of Down syndrome in their family. Um, that happens prenatally now more than ever. Um, but also, you know, about 50% of our families find out the day their child is born that their child has Down syndrome. So we provide um, a lot of resources and expertise and just connection and hope and um, support in the first year of life. It's pretty intensive. We have a mentorship program, family events, a celebration basket. We do mailings, um, really trying to equip that family with everything they need to get their child off on the right foot. Um, and just to provide, you know, a level of of hope and letting them know that this is, it's going to be okay. And here's all the amazing things that people with Down syndrome accomplish. And, you know, we're here with you along your journey. Um, so, so we, and we offer family support throughout the lifespan. So we do that really intensively in the first year to two years, but then we are here 
um, at any point that a family needs us throughout the rest of the lifespan. So if it's, you know, calling about toilet training or behaviors in school, um, individualized education plans when they're in school, um, transition out of school to the workforce, benefits navigation, aging, health-related issues, basically anything to do with Down syndrome throughout the person's life, we are here to answer those questions. Um, and then we have over the past five years or so, we've really expanded our direct programs and services for people with Down syndrome, especially in the pan during the pandemic, we launched um, about 10 to 12 new virtual programs, which I know we'll talk about today. And that has really helped us to create a connection with our um, school-age teen and adult population. So now we offer a ton of just skill building and social programs for that population online and in person. Um, we have an employment program, and then we do workshops for healthcare providers, for educators, for caregivers. Um, and, and we raise awareness, like I said, and our mission is to celebrate. So we're really trying to also raise awareness about Down syndrome and the lives of people with Down syndrome, because we think that the more we can raise awareness, um, the more people with Down syndrome will be included and in all aspects of life. Um, Down syndrome is the most commonly occurring genetic condition, and it's really one of the few that you can get a diagnosis before birth or right at the time of birth. So it's pretty unique in that case. So we can start that support right when a baby's born. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that. And thank you for such a comprehensive description. I think you summarized it well. And I think um, the the goal of supporting these individuals throughout their lifespan is, is really interesting because the specific type of support that they're going to need is going to vary during that time, right? Like what, what you need, what a parent might need for their child when the child is a baby is going to be very different than adolescence and adulthood. So I just think it's really cool um, that you all have built out these programs to, you know, address the different touch points that the individual is going to um, reach. So, kind of jumping right into the programmatic part of this. I know you're doing so much work um, across, you know, the different <laughs> the different touch points. And um, we when we were thinking about which ones to talk about today, the big focus is obviously the virtual component because the show centers on telehealth and telemedicine. So looking at virtual virtual um, and digital health implementation. So kind of starting off, the first one I wanted to ask you about was the video modeling. I understand that um, DS, AGSL created a series of, of video um, modeling for um, individuals to watch. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What what did the videos include and, and what was the process in creating them? Yeah, definitely. So this um, started, so when COVID kind of came to St. Louis in March of 2020, um, like everybody else, we shut down and panicked and weren't sure exactly what we were going to do. But we did know that people with Down syndrome um, were going to be really greatly affected by the isolation and the um, quarantines that were basically, you know, becoming highly recommended to mandated in some cases. So we sat down and we said, all right, well, we're going to develop a program 
a schedule of programs that people can access online. And um, we're going to teach people how to use Zoom. Um, we're going to teach people how to get online. We're going to teach people how to connect in that way. And we know um, that people with Down syndrome are visual learners. So they just process information better visually. Um, that way of learning is the most successful for people with Down syndrome. And vid video modeling, there's lots of studies that show that video modeling, which is basically, you know, watching somebody do a task that you're meant to then do, um, is highly successful for people with Down, Down, Down syndrome. Sorry. So we developed a program, um, an online program, where some of our staff would talk about various issues that we knew our population was um, struggling with or that were challenges or that we just knew that they needed to learn. So we have a really comprehensive library now of about 200 videos um, done by a couple of our staff members in addition to people with Down syndrome. We have one on wearing your CPAP machine because wearing a CPAP machine is pretty common with people with Down syndrome. Getting your COVID vaccine, getting your booster, brushing your teeth, shaving, how to ride an elevator, how to have healthy relationships. So, you know, kind of covering the entire gamut of being a healthy, whole human um we look at in our living your best life series and healthy habits series so that's on our youtube channel and we get a lot of feedback from families oh could you do one on this topic my son or daughter is struggling with this and it would be really great for them to have a video that they can go back and watch over and over again um to show them how they can do that. And we have such great relationships now with the people that we serve. It's fun for them to get to see people that they like on the screen and people that they're that are role models to them doing something. And, you know, it's a lot better than mom or dad telling you like, oh, you gotta do, you gotta go brush your teeth and this is how you do it. Or this is how you take a shower. If they get to go on and they get to watch Andy or Don doing something, it's, you know, it's just, much more successful. And then they have that on the, you know, access to that as many times as they want to. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not reading about it. They're not having somebody talk in their ears. So, you know, audio processing is difficult for people with Down syndrome. They get to see it. They can watch it as many times as they want. Um, so we really, really like that. And we've kept that going and we've been doing that for two years now. Wow. I love that. And honestly, I feel like <laughs> A lot of people could benefit from how-to videos. 100%. Yes, yes. And I always think, I always laugh about that because we talk about people with Down syndrome and like how they learn and what they need, but it's really no different than how no. most people are successful. So um, yeah. You know, yeah, 100%. I love that. Um, do you know off the top of your head, like what the most popular videos in that series have been? I'm curious. Gosh, I don't. That's, that's such a good question. I could look that up and, and let you know. I don't know which one is. They've been, they've done so many. I don't know which one is the most popular. That's um, really cool. Yeah. I really like that. And I also think that it's valuable to have a resource that you can come back to um, because I think it instills confidence in the viewer to know like, 
that they have that available um, as kind of a lifeline. I, I, I just think it's really cool. And I also think it's cool that um, y'all have been able to kind of custom tailor videos to specific requests that the population has had, because that really shows the level of representation um, that you're that you're trying to provide, right, in um, kind of meeting them where they're at and providing what, what they still need. So really cool. Um, I know another program that you had mentioned um, for today is is the virtual programs just in general that y'all have developed um, both pre-pandemic and then as a result of the pandemic. So um, can you tell us about which programs uh, have been implemented and and your journey in in developing them? Yeah. So like I said, um, we really kind of struggled to reach our teen and adult population through these direct programs before um, COVID. And we tried a number of different activities in our office and, you know, they just weren't, weren't getting a high, um, uptake. And so we kind of, we were just like, well, maybe this isn't a niche that we need to fill. We want to fill gaps and not recreate the wheel. Maybe other organizations are doing this well, and we just don't need to really worry about it. Um, but then COVID happened and we, we really do feel like we were the first, um, on the scene here in St. Louis to develop a pretty robust calendar of online programs, um, just because we knew that there was going to be an urgency to that. Like I said, um, so we, gosh, it's been, you know, two and a half years now. I'm trying to think of some of the ones that we started with at the very beginning. I mean, it was really rudimentary. So we're like, we're just going to get on and on zoom and we're going to just talk. So that was like our conversation club. Um, we did a book club. So here, you know, grab this book, we're going to get together and we're just going to read and we're going to share via Zoom. Um, We did a parents happy hour so parents could connect after work. And that was really successful. Um, We did story time where one of our staff would read a story uh, and online on Facebook. So our little guys, really any age, they could get on there and listen. Um, Andy did music and movement. So music therapy online. And then we just kept growing from there and tweaking. So we would say, well, this one isn't, not as many people are coming to this one anymore, or these two are pretty similar. Why don't we combine them? Um, We're still doing bingo. Bingo is one of our most popular programs. We have about like uh, up to 30 people playing Zoom bingo with us every single Wednesday for the last two years. Um, And it's been amazing to see, using that as an example, the progress that I don't even think we, when we set out to do these programs that we even anticipated, or we even wrote, wrote down what we expected our outcomes to be like, it was just kind of crisis mode. And we're like, we're going to do this. We know it's going to have an impact. Um, but to see what that has really looked like. So we had people jumping on in the beginning and it was just, you know, crickets and they, Andy would call the numbers and, people would say bingo. But now, I mean, they have inside jokes. Um, you know, 066 is like, Eric gets his kicks on 066 and everybody cracks up and they've got a song that they do every time somebody <laughs> gets bingo. And so to see the friendships, and using bingo as an example, to see the friendships that they've built through these online programs, some of them have never even met in person. But, you know, especially with people with Down syndrome who conversation skills and speech and confidence in speaking um, is is a challenge and but it's so important 
the virtual programs have been so impactful. Um, we do, we used to do a rock 21 program in person and we couldn't do that. So now we do a ukulele club online and we've got about 20 people that participate in ukulele club. Everybody got a ukulele. We, they get on um, every week. They practice songs. They get to perform in person now at various places. Um, so that's great for speech and just, you know, music therapy is super important for people with developmental disabilities. Um, improv, which I know you help us out with improv yeah. and, and help us with our improv program. That is, I mean, there's numerous studies about how improv um, helps your brain function and quick thinking and your confidence and all of that. So that's another really cool program that we've um, we've got certified to do and we offer online. Um, our conversation club is still going strong. We call it Let's Talk. And that's another great example. I was just talking to one of my staff people this morning about, um, you know, putting together a compilation video of when we started. And again, it was just, you know, one word answers. There wasn't any follow-up. There wasn't any conversation or dialogue. So now, you know, yesterday they had a conversation like, well, if you had all the money in the world, what business would you start? Oh, I'm going to start a pizza. I'm going to start a pizza company. I'm going to call it Mike's Pizza. And my specialty is going to be, you know, Mike's special and it's going to have mushrooms. And so, and then they're all talking and they're all laughing and having a great time. So it's really hard to put into words how meaningful and how successful those online communities have been for us. We serve a really wide geographic area. So the technology has also allowed us to serve more people because they don't have to drive to the office. And I don't know that we would have done any of this if it wasn't for the necessity um, yeah. that COVID gave us, you know, that, that crisis mode. I don't know that we would have done any of this. So it's been, it's been the one silver lining from COVID is that we all had to think a little bit differently about how we reach people and how we offer programs. And they've been really impactful, more impactful than any other direct program we've ever offered. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm. First of all, I love all of the offerings, and um, for the audience listening, I do teach improv at the Down Syndrome Association. I have a background in improv and sketch comedy, and I've been fortunate enough to be a virtual director um, over the past couple of months, and um, it, it's just been a blast to get to work with uh, my students, and they they do genuinely look forward to it. And you know, if we have a week off for a holiday. Um, they notice and they want to know exactly when we're going to be back. I have some that reach out to me in advance of class every week to confirm the exact time. Like they, they, they look forward to it and they have formed these wonderful friendships. And um, I, I just think it's such a great opportunity uh, for for them and also um, not only to sharpen, you know, cognition and prepare for, you know, the world, like if they want jobs, helping them prepare for interviews, um, and then feeling confident. Um, but also, like you said, just the socialization that we all need and deserve in our lives. I think too, you know, when you think about, so we just know this about aging too, for all humans, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so the more, as we age, the more, um, sedentary, we become the less we use our brain, the less we are firing those neurons, the more um, we just lose our skills and we regress. And so, and that is more true in the Down syndrome population than it is in the typical population. So, 
Um, Down syndrome, there is a correlation with Down syndrome and advanced aging. So you'll see somebody that has Down syndrome that is in their 40s, but they might look or act like they're in their 60s. And that just becomes exponential over time. Um, So we have people in their 50s and you would swear that they were in their 80s. So we just know that um, that is a real concern for the Down syndrome population. We have to keep their skills going. We have to keep them talking. We have to keep them using their brain. As soon as they're just sitting in their homes watching TV all day, it's it's gone. It's over. Um, and there is also a really high correlation between out, Alzheimer's disease and Down syndrome. So that third copy of the 21st chromosome um, impacts the production of amyloid plaques um, in, in, in the brain. And so we know that people with Down syndrome are going to be 50% of people by the time they're in their sixties are going to have the, um, Alzheimer's disease. A hundred percent of them are going to have the plaques and tangles in their brain that go along with Alzheimer's disease. And, and about 50% of them are going to have the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. So we just, you know, we, we cannot stress enough to families, um, and the community about how important it is for all of us to keep moving, keep using your brain. And technology is such a good way for people that don't have access to transportation that don't drive. Our population does not drive. Um, it's, it's such an important way that we can stay connected and using, using our brains. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And, um, I would, I was definitely curious and wanted to touch on the specific, um, issues that are facing the Down syndrome community as we as we look at health equity, where are those gaps and um, where are those opportunities for support going forward? And I know you had mentioned, you know, Alzheimer's being one of those early aging. Um, can you tell me about others that might be affecting this population, including, you know, mental health um, and emotional health? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we think about regression and dementia and Alzheimer's disease as we sort of lump that into mental health. Um, however, people with Down syndrome are, are and developmental disabilities generally um, are more at risk for depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, they experience grief differently. So this, the past two years have been really difficult just in, in terms of processing grief, whether it's the real loss of someone that they love or just the loss of their life before COVID, their normal, their routine. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot in this country about our mental health crisis and the lack of providers, the lack of, you know, affordable mental health, just getting in to see a provider. Um, and it is doubly true for people with developmental disabilities because you have to, A, be able to identify that and, and um, untangle the developmental disability or the intellectual disability from what's going on with their mental health. Um, and it manifests in different ways in people with developmental disabilities. And then they just have different triggers and different reasons that somebody might have um, be having mental health challenges in somebody with a developmental disability or Down syndrome. So all those things make it really challenging. Um, And then you just, you really don't have providers that are comfortable or equipped to serve people, mental health providers that are comfortable and equipped to serve people with developmental disabilities. So it's a real challenge. Um, It's a huge challenge to find providers that will 
be, you know, we'll, we'll give really good and um, quality care for physical health, people with Down syndrome, let alone mental health. Um, so it's going to be a huge priority for me and our association in 2023 to get some experts at the table and to try to brainstorm how we can, at least in this the greater St. Louis area, how we can start to close some of those gaps and build up opportunities for care for yeah. our population. So um, this is such an interesting topic to me because you're exactly right. It's become very commonplace in a lot of conversations um, pre-pandemic, but I think as a result of the pandemic, because we all experienced isolation. And um, I, I think as we look at that conversation, I'm curious, and my question is, do you think that it's not common knowledge or not automatically assumed that the Down syndrome population is impacted just as much uh, when it comes to mental health? Because, you know, I often hear, and also for my audience, I have a sister with Down syndrome. I probably should have mentioned it at the beginning. Um, and she's 21. And, you know, throughout my life, people have always said to me, oh, like, she's so happy. Um, they're so happy, like making vast generalizations about the mood and disposition of people with Down syndrome based off of like just how they go about life. And yeah, they're wonderful, uh, but they also have complex human emotions like anybody else. So I'm, I'm curious to know from your perspective, like what do you think, where where do you think we can grow in, in our assumptions and associations with mental health and, and Down syndrome? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's, it, um it opens up a conversation, I think, about how we treat people with disabilities more broadly. Um, and I know that there, there is generally, um, we have like a paternalistic view of, of over people with Down syndrome, or we like infantilize them a little bit or, you know, treat them like children. Um, so they they don't have complex feelings, right? Because they they can't process complex feelings. They're fine, you know. They're like you said, they're happy. They're just going about their business. Um, but it's not true. I mean, you and I both know we have siblings. It's like, man, they definitely have grumpy days, or they give me Andrew gives me sass all the time, and it's like I'm having real conversations with him, like I would have with a brother that did not have Down syndrome, and he is struggling over might not be the exact same thing that I'm stressed about, but um, he is worried about something or he's worried about a friend or he's worried about what he's going to do for a job. And, and all, you know, he wants a relationship and he hasn't been able to have one of those in a while. And so, you know, the, the things that we all worry about or the things that we that cause us stress might be different and you or I might think oh gosh well you have no idea what I'm dealing with <laughs> but it, I mean how that's not fair it's not fair to say that to anybody it's all relative so I just think that parents and caregivers and siblings and extended family members in the community we need to take a step back and, and remember that um, just because somebody has a de developmental disability or an intellectual disability doesn't mean that they aren't also having worries or they're not processing grief or um, it might look different. It might be for different reasons, but they're having those exact same feelings that we're having and we need to pay attention to it um, and stop ignoring it and stop acting like if we ignore it, it's going to go away. Right. And a lot of times it's like, oh, well, me, 
I'm not comfortable helping you process your feelings. So I'm just going to ignore it. And we, gosh, we do that to everybody. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, as you were, as you were talking about this, I was thinking, well, this is also (laughs) just a general issue (laughs) as a whole. But I do think, um, you know, within the Down syndrome community, like there is a common misconception that they don't have like complex feelings or emotions. And it's just such a, it very much frustrates me. Um, But also uh, without that, you know, acknowledgement, we can't have support. We can't provide adequate support. So I think like having that conversation and making that public knowledge and, and working to provide the same infrastructure that we would, you know, um, the the typical community i mean that is kind of the first step i think um in in moving forward so another program that i was really interested in talking about is the down syndrome clinic to you so um i know that that is a program that was developed by another organization but y'all have used it can you can you describe the program to me and and the ways that y'all have been able to use it as an organization here yeah definitely um so 100% we we just think this is a program that's really cool we had nothing to do with the development of it but we recommend it a lot and i just think it's a great model um for how we can grow telemedicine and access to healthcare. Um, it's a partnership between Massachusetts General Hospital, um, Mass General um, Brigham, Mass General for Children, and then Harvard Medical School Teaching Hospital. And there were some, there's just some physicians there that are very, very dedicated to the health of people with Down syndrome for personal reasons. And so um, they developed this online um it's like an online provider basically you can go in you can create an account you can log all the information about your child adult child um small child with down syndrome and then you can kind of look at some of the symptoms that they're experiencing or even if they're not having any any symptoms necessarily you can go in and just say what do i need to be thinking about Um, they have put in here all of the best practices, all of the top science, the top research around Down syndrome. And so, you know, you're going to put in your kid's age and their, um, you know, probably their biological sex and and information about them. And you're going to get, here are the things you need to think about. You need to get a hearing screening, a vision screening. Um, oh, they're having... Um, X, Y, and Z issues. Have you thought about getting them t- getting their thyroid tested? That's com- that's common in people with Down syndrome. So we just know that because, like I said earlier, physicians can't be experts in in, in everything, um, and there is a really big gap in treating people with developmental disabilities and Down syndrome. This was I. We just think it's a great tool for providers to access and for families to access. So you can say you live in a small town. Um, your provider doesn't know anything about Down syndrome, you can go on here, you can create a personalized care plan for your child, you can take the printout to your physician and say, this is what the experts in Down syndrome say we should be looking at. Um, let's, let's check it out. Let's do it. Let's get these tests or let's look into these things. So, um, you know, we're, we definitely recommend this to families and it's, relatively new within the last couple of years. So we're still trying to get the word out, but 
think it's a great model. And um, it's DSC, the number two, letter U.org. So check it out. Um, I think they'd be great to talk to a little bit more too about this model of healthcare seeking in a world where just seems like getting care uh, is getting more difficult yeah. for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a really good point. Um, well, you had, you had mentioned the rural communities too. And that's one of the things I wanted to um, ask about in greater detail. This um, organization that that hosts the show, Heartland Telehealth Resource Center, serves the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And the goal is to support telehealth access and implementation, especially among our rural demographics. I know um, in leading the Down Syndrome Association here in St. Louis, um, we are in Missouri and we have rural populations, you know, surrounding the city um, area. And, and I'm curious to know in your experience, are there specific issues facing the Down syndrome community that are unique to the rural populations compared to, you know, our urban counterparts? Definitely. I think like anything, it's just access to services. Um, I've been hearing a lot through the podcast I listen to um, about how children's hospitals are closing everywhere. Um, they're not money makers, and so they're closing them down. And, you know, that is very concerning. Um, we have one children's hospital that has a Down syndrome clinic in, you know, in the eastern side of Missouri and southern Illinois. So if you live in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, you have to drive two, three hours at least to get up to St. Louis to take your kiddo to the Down syndrome clinic at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And that is where the experts are. That's where they can get you coordinated care. They can make sure you're getting your vision screening, your hearing screening, all of that good stuff, um, cardiologists are and, and whatnot. So, you know, just physical access to care is more limited in rural areas, um, not to mention therapy. So you might have one therapist, speech therapist or PT or OT that covers multiple counties. So you're, you're not getting the therapies that you need. Um, it, even if you could pay or wanted to pay for additional therapies, you don't, you can't find somebody to provide the therapies that you need. Um, and that's, you know, those are therapies that are covered by first steps here in Missouri. So, you know, get, getting even just the basic therapies that your kiddo needs and is, has, should have, um, at least, you know, covered by healthcare, um, is difficult to get. And I think that's just, you know, there's just a laundry list of examples like that where we're just getting access. Um, and then, you know, you have fewer providers maybe, so they do have to be experts on everything and they're just not going to be experts on Down syndrome. Right. So we know parents are advocates and they have to be advocates and, you know, it just means that those families that they just have to work harder and they have to, you know, yell louder and, um, same thing for school and the educational system, um, kind of across the board. We just know that rural families have a little bit tougher go of it. Um, and they ha had to educate themselves more because they have to be their advocate. So, you know, if they have time to do that, if they have the resources to do that, and that's anywhere, it doesn't have to be rural. You know, you think about health equity in general, it's like, 
Baslow's hierarchy of needs. Where are you on that hierarchy? If you're just trying to get the bills paid and food on the table, then making sure your kiddo is accessing the best of the best and therapy for people with Down syndrome, is probably pretty low on your list of things that you can get done that week. Right. Um, or that you even know about or have had time to research. So we really see that being an issue. And the Down Syndrome Association um, has advancing equity in um, the Down Syndrome community as one of our strategic goals for the next few years and, and beyond, of course. It's it's always a work in progress. But how can we connect families in rural communities? How can we connect families of color? Um, how can we better educate health providers and educational systems so that all kids are getting the care that they need, the education that they need. As we kind of wrap up today, are there any topics that I didn't cover that you want to mention um, as it relates to, you know, the organization, disability as a whole, virtual care? Um, yeah, I know, you know, you and I prior to this show had talked a little bit about what is healthcare look like. And I think a lot about what we do um, more broadly as social and emotional health care. Um, so, you know, when you connect with us, you're not connecting with a physician, you're not connecting with a licensed, you know, um, mental health professional necessarily. Um, but you are connecting with people that are experts in Down syndrome. You're connecting with people that have lived experience. You're connecting with other families. And a lot of that is done virtually by phone, by email, um, on Zoom. And, you know, our support groups, a lot of them are done by Zoom. And I just, I don't think that we can overlook um, or overstate the benefit of how technology can create community um, and the benefit of community to our health. I mean, there's just plenty of studies that show that belonging and sense of community impacts positively our mental health and our emotional health um, and well-being. And we know that mental and emotional health impacts our physical health. So I, I think, you know, that is something that we do really well. That's our one of our priorities is developing this family. And it's across counties, it's across states. It's um and we use we do techno we use technology to do that. So I think that's a huge benefit. Um and then you know it just can't be overstated enough the the importance of that. Yeah, yeah. Great, great point. Um and I think there's so much opportunity going forward, especially um, as we look at digital care. A lot of my clientele are telehealth, um, telemedicine organizations. And I mean, one of the major goals is reaching different populations um, as, as implementation develops. So including urban, rural, um, the disability community, um, people of color, you know, what, whatever it might be, meeting them where they're at and taking them where they need to go in order to bridge those gaps. So um, I'm really excited for what's ahead. And I see a lot of uh, motivation within our health systems and even within like the federal government and the the grants that are coming out, having health equity be 
a major buzzword. So um, I, I think that the pandemic really kind of propelled that forward in a lot of ways and, and uh, made people recognize the importance of having digital care access. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of room to grow in that arena still and, and a lot of motivation to do so. So it's it's an exciting time to be in this industry and to look at the intersection of of different populations, including including this one. Right. Well, and I, I think it starts with just treating um, Internet access and technology access like we do other, you know, kind of basic necessities um, and getting broadband Internet out to all different communities and making sure people have access to online. So, you know, just basic, pure access to the internet right like step number one right and we're not even entirely there in this country um which is a huge equity issue and then you know how do you pay for it and is it affordable and can you afford a tablet and so i you know i just think you could talk for days and you you do (laughs) about how to you know equity and uh in in healthcare and equity and and online access and stuff like that so it's a lots of moving pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool. And I think, um, you know, especially in our rural communities, that is a recurring need, having broadband, having Wi-Fi, um, especially when your local hospital is two hours away. Right. Um, And so I've seen so many cool people doing cool work in order to bridge that gap, including creating public spaces and libraries where people can access their telehealth visit, having soundproof walls, having the technology, the stable Wi-Fi. Um, that that has been one really cool um, program that's been implemented that has really benefited a lot of these communities. But I'm just excited to see how we continue to innovate in this arena um, and to, you know, take care of society's most vulnerable as we look at this, you know. Um, so very cool. Um, hey, it has been such a pleasure. I'm so glad that you took the time to meet with us and talk about this. I, like I said, this could have very easily been hours. <laughs> um, and it's always hard for me to like whittle down exact questions because when when covering this topic, um, I don't I don't think there's any limit on on the questions that could be asked. So looking forward to um, hopefully having more conversations in the future. And I just want to thank you again for your time. Yeah, this has been great. I really appreciate it. It's um, a great opportunity to flex my public health muscles a little bit and have some conversation about things I really care about and how it intersects with uh, the Down syndrome community. And so thanks for the work that you're doing to bring these stories to the public and through your podcast. I think we learn from each other. And so um, the more we can get our success stories out, the, the better. This has been Telehealth Unmuted. Be sure to share this episode and subscribe to hear future interviews with leading experts in the field. This podcast was made possible by the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center through grant number U1UTH42530 from the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, Health Resources and Services Administration and Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs>